So we're saying to students, figure out what you think and use writing to do that. Let's look at how you look at evidence, how you figure out what you think. So ChatGPT can kind of short circuit that whole process and just give you an output, but it's not doing what we want our students to be able to do, think for themselves. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, and today we're tackling a monster of a topic, ChatGBT, something which will likely affect us all eventually, if it hasn't already, and for our three guest speakers, an AI tool that they're already having to navigate. In this discussion, we will consider both the obvious and less apparent repercussions of utilizing a tool that is yet to be regulated or even fully understood. Gary Marcus is a scientist and entrepreneur, author of Rebooting AI, Building Artificial Intelligence We Can Trust. He's also Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Neuroscience at NYU and hosts the podcast Humans versus Machines. Jane Rosenzweig is Director of the Harvard Writing Center, a freelance writer and author of Writing Hacks newsletter. And completing the trio, Wesley Wildman is professor in the School of Theology and in the Faculty of Computing and Data Sciences at Boston University. Steering our discussion today will be Andrew Kimball, Director of Online Lifelong Learning at BU School of Theology. Welcome to you all, Andrew. We have an esteemed panel and major topics. Let's dive right in. Gary, to get us started, you and other tech industry leaders such as Elon Musk and Sam Altman signed a letter requesting or perhaps demanding a moratorium on training large AI systems more powerful than ChatGPT4 because they pose profound risks to society and humanity. What is ChatGPT and what risks are associated with this technology? We may be urged rather than demanded. I don't think we have the authority to demand. So ChatGPT is an AI system that is trained on a massive amount of human text. Um, you can also train it on things like programming languages, um, but we'll stick today probably to the <clears throat> training on human text version. And it can say things like a human would say in many contexts. I would say that its comprehension of the world is limited, but that despite not having any real comprehension of the world, because it has so much text that it's trained on, it often says things that are plausible, sometimes says things that are useful. And I think it's, you know, it's the fastest growing consumer technology of all time. People are finding all kinds of purposes. They're still exploring what it can do for them. So the programming version helps programmers. People are using it to write boilerplate text. Probably everybody in the audience has seen it. It's, it's so popular and got so popular so quick. On the risk side, there are concerns about whether it might be used to generate misinformation, it or very similar tools. There's a more general category here we call large language models. ChatGPT is one instance of it. It has something called guardrails that make it somewhat safe, but not perfectly safe. Bad actors might use the general form of technology to create deliberate misinformation. Even with the guardrails, it creates a lot of accidental misinformation. Like there was a case that the Washington Post described a couple of weeks ago where the system said somebody was involved in sexual harassment when they weren't really. One version of the system made up a fake reference to an article in the Washington Post that didn't exist, just made up kind of arbitrary stuff. So we have those kinds of problems. 
Um, there are problems, potential problems with medical misinformation, potential uh, uses that cybercrime or cyber criminals might use these things for. So there are both positive uses and negative uses. And because it's exploding so fast, nobody really knows either the sort of upper or lower bounds of it. But it's the first time we've been really pressed with a lot of open-ended AI in the real world. Could you say more about the moratorium? The moratorium specifically is often misconstrued. What the moratorium, which I did not write, but I signed and helped popularize, what it called for was a ban on one particular thing, which was the training of models bigger than GPT-4, which is the biggest known model. Um, and so it said, we don't want anybody to train GPT-5, basically. It did not call for a ban on AI research in general. And in fact, there's no other research system ever that it said you couldn't do, no other research topics. So it was a very narrow ban on one particular piece of research, um, GPT-5, and it didn't call for a ban on AI at all. So its opponents often try to portray it as a ban on AI, which it was not, or a ban on AI research, which it was not. It was actually promoting more AI research on making AI safe and trustworthy and so forth. So it was really misportrayed, but it was saying, let's not build GPT-5. We know GPT-4 is reckless. GPT-5 is going to be reckless in some of the same ways. Let's hold on. It would be an even better tool for making misinformation, for example. Does the world really need that? Maybe we should wait. I also personally proposed a moratorium on deployment rather than research, um, which would be another way of sort of slowing down and holding up. And then more broadly, I've been proposing that we need an international agency for AI governance. Thank you so much. Jane and Wesley, over to you. As academics who work in different disciplines, does using the current version of ChatGPT undermine or augment the learning goals in your respective classrooms? Well, very directly, I teach writing and I teach writing to college students. And so ChatGPT can write, as uh, Gary was saying, and many of you have probably experimented with it. Uh, so I would say, I'm not going to say undermine, but I will say it poses more challenges or causes more problems than it solves for what we're trying to do in the, in the writing classroom. Probably the best way I've found to explain this is that there's a distinction between a product and a writing process. So chat GPT can create a product, right? You can say, write me a short paper about this topic, or you can say, um, give me 10 ideas for my paper. You can ask it for output. But what we're trying to do in the college writing classroom, at least, is, is encourage a process of critical thinking. So we're saying to students, figure out what you think and use writing to do that. What questions do you have? What Let's look at how you look at evidence, how you analyze evidence, how you figure out what you think. And so chat GPT can kind of short circuit that whole process and just give you an output, but it's not doing what we want our students to be able to do, which is think for themselves. So for example, I mean, if you were to say to someone, you know, well, someone else thinks X, what do you think, right? That's a conversation. But if you say, ask chat GPT what it thinks, it's not yet clear exactly how that's useful in the process. Although there are many educators who are valiantly trying to figure that out. Yes, Jane's right. I think that this is a big challenge to students who are trying to figure out how to think and to teachers who are trying to help them learn how to think. It's not necessarily a complete stop, though. We've got lots of ways of learning how to think as human beings. Not all of them involve writing. Humanities scholars like me as a philosopher 
as an ethicist, uh, we do routinely use writing as a way to evaluate whether people understand what they're supposed to be learning. And we deeply value the process that Jane has just described. That's completely correct. My students uh, in the ethics of technology class that I'm teaching at the moment, they really want help to figure out how to use this. They don't want their skill set damaged. They don't want people to cheat, which puts them at a disadvantage because they're competing for jobs in the tech world. So they want us to flex. They want professors to rethink how they're trying to teach them. I think that's a really interesting challenge and I've been moved by that. They're going to be living with these tools forever. So we need to appreciate the limitations of these tools, make sure that we stay focused on helping students how to think, but at the same time recognize that a lot of text generation in the future is going to be done differently than it is now, especially boilerplate type text that lawyers and insurance agents and a lot of things, sermons, as well in religious contexts. All of these things are, are going to be easier to generate, faster to generate. They will undermine the process of thinking, but at the same time, they'll free people up to do other things that they might value more. I think this is inevitable. So even if there's aspects of it I really don't like, I don't think it can be stopped either. So I think we need to be imaginative and flex. And I'll just uh, leave one thought about how to do that. The big challenge, both in coding and in writing, is going to be eliciting from generative AIs. The skill involved in eliciting code from generative AIs is already something that we're trying to learn because the code's pretty good that it can generate. The same thing's true for writing as well. Eliciting is something like a higher order skill that needs to be mastered by professors and taught to students so that they can choose when to generate writing themselves and when to elicit using large language models and other forms of generative AI to create writing for them. Wesley, can you say a little bit more about the standards that you're working on? What are those standards and what do they hope to achieve? The Faculty for Computing and Data Sciences at Boston University uh, worked hard to develop a policy that responded to the sorts of student requests that I just listed before. So it's a positive but critical and measured embrace of generative AI. It requires students to be transparent about how they're using it, to include an appendix where they document how they use it, to make sure that uh, generative AI text detection processes are employed and that their text passes those so that they don't get caught by accident as having used generative AI when they shouldn't have. So all of those things are designed to get them to think critically about generative AI. For example, uh, Gen AI text generation uh, routinely hallucinates, creates mistakes, just as Gary was describing before. If a student is able to identify a mistake or improve on a superficial argument or criticize a point made in text that was generated by an AI, then it's understood that that student can gain the basic grading baseline that someone who did not use Gen AI uh, can gain. So those, uh, the, then after that, it's the excellence of the quality, excellence of the product. So this is a form of thinking but it's not the same form as, of thinking as you use when you generate writing. It's a form of thinking related to critically engaging writing that's been elicited by you and produced from uh, 
a large language model of one kind or another. Uh, that type of critical thinking is also extremely important and the kind of skill that they're going to need more and more in the years to come. Gary, so why exactly was ChatGPT created? Was it created to make human life simpler, to free us up, to do more things, or was it created to help us solve real world human problems like climate change, hunger, and perhaps poverty? I guess in a way you have to ask OpenAI that question since they created it. I will say, kind of taking that in a couple parts, I don't think it's actually a good tool for working on world hunger or climate change and so forth. I, I think what it's at its best at is writing boilerplate text, which you know is very useful for an undergraduate writing a term paper. We can debate the morality of it, but certainly it can do that um, for the undergraduate. It's not really good at scientific discovery. To give people perspective, I like to talk about GPT-4 and playing chess. It's trained on a lot of chess games. It's trained on the rules of chess, but it can't actually follow those rules. So it's tempting to see it as a general intelligence, but it only plays chess about as well as a chess computer from 1979 would play. Um, nowhere near as well as a good chess computer would now. It's not as if we can apply this technology to any problem in the world. Its strength is in generating plausible sounding text. It's not in reasoning about the world. It's not in interpreting the world. It's not really in inventing new things. Typically find that the writing that it does is fairly bland. It's not necessarily going to write something inspiring. It's pretty good at, at sort of doggerel style poetry, but um, it's probably not going to write a genuinely interesting poem either. And so, you know, it has its use cases. I think OpenAI was just kind of playing around with how can we generate something that has the general qualities of text? They did not expect that it was going to take off in the way that it did. They were hoping it would be popular. They did some things to make it popular, which does not include naming it. ChatGPT is impossible to say. Many people you know, wind up with chat, and well, I won't give you alternatives, but we all know. Um, so it wasn't particularly well named, but what they did do to make it seductive is to make it type things out one word at a time, which made it have this sort of human quality. And part of why it's attracted people is it feels human. It isn't really. We shouldn't actually anthropomorphize it. And I think we make a mistake if we do. One person actually committed suicide in response to a similar kind of AI system, um, perhaps attributing more agency to it than it had and more wisdom than it had. So it's not a general purpose tool for all of AI. It's sort of like a jack of all trades and master of none. And in a domain where you don't need perfection, like maybe a term paper where your professor is grading 35 of them, maybe you don't need perfection. But in domain like giving people medical advice, you would actually want that. So from a perspective of an AI researcher, I would say it's a very intermediate step. Um, it's actually a fairly immature technology, but it does have some uses already, more than I think they were anticipating, and some risks as well that were not originally anticipated. And so you've got this thing that really should still be in the laboratory, in my view. Like people should be like, how do we make this better? How do we make it so we can trust it? But it's out there now. So now we have to deal with that for better and for worse. The fact that... Uh these large language models can now pass a whole bunch of exams is quite interesting. I think one of OpenAI's motivations was the investment from Microsoft, $100 million, uh, which was a critical move in trying to produce Microsoft's Copilot, which is supposed to be an efficiency increasing extension to the Microsoft Office suite, which is uh, supposed to know a lot about you and your schedule and able to generate emails and text for you and so on. Microsoft's imagining 
that this is a transformative technology for massively increasing the efficiency of office workers. And they might be right or wrong about that. I suspect they're right. And I think OpenAI is heavily invested in releasing this and building up excitement specifically in order to advance this type of technology. $100 million is a large investment. And yeah. Sorry, so I think it's ten, the correct figure is $10 billion in the most recent round. So Sorry, you're right. <clears throat> Sorry, $100 million is, uh, is Microsoft. Jump change compared to what, what they uh, actually invest in. The, the $100 million is Microsoft's investment in the digital immortality technology, my mistake. I was just going to jump in for a second to say that I think from the education perspective, Andrew's question, you know, why was this, uh, why was this developed is something that we're really grappling with, right? This is a, a, in a sense, a solution in search of a problem as far as education is concerned. And I think it's really important for us to think about that, not just at the college level, where, you know, Wesley students have a certain facility with critical thinking already as they're helping develop these policies. But this technology is going to trickle down to K through 12, and we're going to have chat GPT natives who may not learn to do the critical thinking that we're all doing. And I think that um, there's a huge pressure, part of it coming from ed tech, and part of it just because this is out there, that's sort of saying, you know, you this train is leaving, you need to get on this train, this is the future. And yet, this is not something that was developed to solve the very real problems in K through 12 education and in college education. And so teachers are really grappling with something, which is, uh, Gary actually nodded to this in an early newsletter, the Jurassic Park moment from when Jeff Goldblum and Jurassic Park is yelling at the people who created the dinosaurs, you know, you didn't have, you, you weren't thinking about what, what was going to happen when you did this. And I think from the education perspective, there's some exciting things, but there's also just this, this sense of, you know, upending, uh, disrupting everything. It is a dual use monster, right? Like there are positive uses and negative uses, none of which has been fully thought through. If I could just amplify one thing that's already come up twice is the critical thinking skills. A lot from the educational perspective, there's a possible win here, which is if students start to look at its output critically and use this as an opportunity to think critically, then it might be great. If they just rely on it, don't look critically, then it could be a disaster. And so a lot really is going to depend on what we do with it now that it's here. You're listening to Beauty or the Beast, the true cost of ChatGBT, with Gary Marcus, entrepreneur, scientist, and author of Rebooting AI, Building Artificial Intelligence We Can Trust. Jane Rosenzweig, Director of the Harvard Writing Center, and Wesley Wildman, Professor of Philosophy, Theology, and Ethics, and Computing and Data Sciences at Boston University. Are there any examples of sort of creative, critical usage of GPT that you would affirm? I mean, I can, I'm not a professor anymore. I was for decades. But what I would do if I were a professor now, it would be to say, <clears throat> go ahead, use chat GPT. And then your assignment's going to be to tell me what it got right, what it got wrong. You know, that's going to be a critical thinking assignment, how it could be better. Like I like to, when I was teaching writing, I like to teach my students, I would say, let's go look at Google News for something that was just reported. And we'll find 20 different stories on it with 20 different angles. So look at the angle that ChatGPT takes, it's almost always kind of straightforward, but dull. And tell me how you could write this from a different angle. Like, 
you know, write it from Jay Gatsby's angle or, or Daisy Buchanan's angle or what, you know, do, do, do something else. Describe it. If you were the street lighting, you watched the whole thing, um, you know, compare it to what ChatGPT did. Why would this be better? Why would this be worse? What would this give you insight into? And so I would try to use it as a departure point and say, start with this and tell me where else you could go. Jane, I'm still ruminating on your recent comment. Uh, is it correct to say that you feel AI or really chat GPT threatens RNA desire to think critically, problem solve, and innovate? I don't know if it's chat GPT that threatens that or the ease of, of using chat GPT, if there is such a distinction. I mean, my concern is, is not that individual students are using this in the classroom, right? That's, that's a, a different set of circumstances. We can, we can deal with that in many ways, the way we've always dealt with what, what we would call cheating, you know, using it when you're not supposed to. That's not my main concern. My concern is that this idea that we all have to get on this train. And so if we do, if individual teachers do, if institutions do, if this is the way everything's done, I do think there are going to be things that are lost. Uh, maybe there are going to be things that are gained. But I just if I take Gary's example, there's nothing wrong with that. That sounds like a perfectly reasonable thing to do in a classroom. But what I do in my classroom right now is the same thing only with human texts, right? My students critique each other's arguments and talk about what what they missed or how you could look at that from a different angle. And we we have guest speakers come in and we talk to them about their ideas. And I just worry that some of that is going to be lost in this sort of ease and convenience of this machine that, as, as we've talked about, really isn't saying anything particularly interesting right now. And so is there going to be a flattening, not only of, of the ideas that we come up with, but also of, of genuine interest and engagement? I mean, you know, people have different reactions to this. I'm, I did a lot with chat gpt to figure out what it was what was going on when it first came out i now find it kind of depressing to interact with it i can sort of predict what i'm going to get and i don't know if this is going to be the thing that energizes a new generation of students to care about learning or if it's just going to be what i fear it's going to be which is a shortcut right. we have a ton of different ways of teaching one another how to think for thousands of years we've been doing that before we invented writing we were doing that with body movement and dancing and stories and oral cultures. We've been learning how to think, to navigate environments, to find uh, our way across vast distances, to figure out which parts of our environment were safe to engage and eat and get close to and whatnot. So we've been finding workarounds forever. In the STEM disciplines, there's uh, most of what's done to evaluate whether or not people understand what's going on doesn't involve writing. And there's lots of domains where we can use things other than writing to evaluate what, evaluate what people are doing and to teach people how to think. I agree that there's going to be something lost. I think what's going to happen is that people who think of generating human text as uh, valuable for them are going to be a specialised subculture within the educational system. A few people are going to want to do that. They're going to want to master all of the skills that every writer has ever had. Uh, but there's a lot of other people who aren't really that great at writing and for whom learning to write isn't a priority. And those people are probably going to be more grateful for chat GPT than we can possibly state. Uh, or its descendants 10 generations from now, which don't have some of the shortcomings that we're talking about at the moment. And I think just like coding is a specialised task, I think writing is going to be a specialised task as well. And what most people are going to need to learn to do is to elicit 
both, uh, illicit code and illicit text. We need to teach people how to do that. If we get better and better at developing and training AI and AGI to do anything the human brain can do and perhaps exceed it, will this render human intelligence redundant? Gary and then Wesley? I mean, in the short term, no. I mean, in the short term, <laughs> what we're going to find is that for most things that we want to get done, a human plus a machine is going to be better than either on their own. This is what we found for a number of years, like radiology. There was a myth that we should stop training radiologists. And right now we're better off with a radiologist who knows how to use the AI software, but still has their own judgment. I think we'll see that pattern for a while in many tasks. A <clears throat> hundred years from now, there may not be you know, a lot of value added from humans in, in many different tasks, at least for right now the AI systems don't really understand the, the world well enough to be capable on their own, but they do add, add some value in, in many situations. So, you know, human augmentation is sometimes the buzzword. I think that's what we're likely to see in the near term. I do think we're a long way away from artificial general intelligence, so decades at least. But these tools show you that a lot of the fears that people have been worried about for a long time with regard to AI are misplaced. Are people worried about AI being conscious, that the strong AI program from decades ago, the, the worry was that AIs would become conscious. And basically, that's not really what people are talking about now. They're talking about behavioral competence. And the behavioral competence in specialized domains is really pretty spectacular. If you can pass a standardized exam better than most humans, then you've got a decent piece of training in your AI. That's good. Well, I, I would flip that around and make a point about AI literacy, which is these things are probably trained on many of those exams. And yep. what, what happens when they pass the exam doesn't necessarily transfer. So part of AI literacy now is understanding these systems can be selectively good at something like they could pass a bar exam doesn't mean they'd actually be a good lawyer. All right. And yet I've got lawyers who are telling me that 80% of what lawyers do in terms of text generation is doable by generative AI text generation probably within a few years. That doesn't mean all those lawyers are going to be out of work, but it does mean that a lot of legal text will be generated in a different way than it has been, and that lawyers will be involved in evaluating, reviewing, refining. So exactly as you said, there would be a kind of uh, collaboration between humans and machines, even in the law. Dean, do you have anything on this question? I think they've covered it well. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't really have an answer to the question of, you know, what, what will happen, will there be a need to be human? But I do think that something that we, we miss talking about sometimes in these conversations is sort of the individual satisfaction or value that we find in doing certain tasks. You know, I'm seeing all these headlines about 80% of all the jobs that we do will be gone in X number of years and we will be freed up to do something else. But what will we do? I mean, I, I think that there are many people who find value in writing, who find value in thinking, who find value in passing the bar exam. And there's this, this sense of kind of what, what does it look like on the other side if indeed these machines are, are going to be doing all of these things. And just to go back one step, this, this idea that maybe writing would become a sort of very specialized thing that only people like me who care about writing would do. I, you know, as a teacher, I, I see every year in my, my first year writing class classroom, students who don't love writing, who 
figure out something, who have an idea in that class that didn't have before, that they're having because they're going through this process. And I'm sure there's another way to go through this process, but this is a pretty good way. And there's a kind of whether or not they're contributing to the general intelligence with this idea, they are figuring out something about what they care about and what they want to pursue and what they think. That That is why I've been doing this for 22 years. And I think I, I think that that idea, it, it sounds almost naive to want to bring it up in the face of this big technology, but it's important for someone to be giving voice to that. Like individual people find satisfaction in thinking about things. And I don't know what that's going to look like in 10, 20, 100 years. And maybe just a final word from our panelists, uh, maybe in one single word, how should the public feel right now about the state of AI? Cautious. Concerned. Intrigued. Thank you so much. Over to you, Mary. I think those adjectives sum it up, really. Anyway, thank you all for your thoughtful and very incisive comments. Gary Marcus, Jane Rosenswig, and Wesley Wildman. So Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, Mass Cultural Council, the Cambridge Community Foundation, and of course you. So if you want to donate or sign up to our list, please visit the website, cambridgeforum.org. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope to see you all soon.